Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the show. My podcasts all have ads. If you find the ads annoying, then consider subscribing to the podcast. With a subscription, you won't hear any ads. Plus, you'll have access to exclusive content only available to subscribers. If you can't afford a subscription, please write to me at admin at colemanhughes.org with a few words explaining why you enjoy the channel and how it benefits you. We'll get back to you after a short period of consideration and we'll offer a subscription free of charge. Thanks again for watching and for all your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. I just got back from my very first trip to the UK, where I attended a great conference organized by the Equiano Project. I'll have much more to say about that on the next episode. But while I was there, I took the opportunity to record a bunch of podcasts in person guests that I could only access in the UK. So you'll be noticing a disproportionate number of British guests in the next six or so episodes of the podcast, which I'm sure my British listeners will love. And to my non-UK listeners, I can assure you that all the topics discussed will be of interest to you as well. So my first UK guest is Andrew Gold. Andrew Gold is an ex-BBC journalist and documentary filmmaker who now has an excellent podcast called On the Edge. Andrew focuses on weird and controversial people, for instance, psychopaths, former cult members, exorcists, and so forth. In this episode, we discuss Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's decision to leave the UK and the accusation of racism they leveled at the royal family on the way out. We discuss the Israel-Palestine conflict. We talk about the prospect of immortality and whether it would be desirable. We talk about the psychology of gender identity. We talk about pop music, social bubbles, and much more. I really like this conversation because we dealt with so many seemingly unrelated topics, which is a nice departure from most of my conversations, which just focus on one topic. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, Andrew Gold. Meghan Markle, right. It does, does, (laughs) what do you think about Meghan Markle? Well. I think that, um, you know, obviously there's a perception of her in the public eye, especially in Britain, as narcissist, social climber, someone who stirs the pot, creates controversy, draws attention to herself, and, and all the rest. My guess is that many of these things are probably true at some level, but they seem to be true of many of the royals. And so why is she being singled out as the, as the only one, right? From an American perspective, we don't worship the crown. Obviously, Brits do, and I understand that. But from an American ear, when I hear that an American woman goes over there, joins the family, and has her phone taken away and can't schedule a lunch with her friend, I think to myself, what is going on there? It makes it only it only makes sense that she would rebel and that sort of try to get her freedom back. But again, that's from the point of view of someone that doesn't worship the crown to begin with. So the irrational and freedom-constricting sort of habits and rules seem simply irrational to me. Whereas I assume for many Brits, they, it's part of the, the value and the honor and, the, and, and all the rest. Is all of that would be a worthwhile trade-off. So my assumption about Megan has been probably, yet yeah, maybe some of the unlikable qualities about her may be true. But at the same time, if I were... In that situation, I would have wanted out in a similar way. And in some ways, I blame Harry for maybe not preparing her Mm. as an American. Like, you know, like, did he take her aside and say, look, you're in love with me. I'm in love with you. We want to get married. But you have to understand, this is going to change your life. And it's going to be worse than you think it is. Are you really prepared for this? Yeah. Did he take her aside and say that? Or did he just say, you know what? Mom's going to love you and blindside her with all the... I mean, there was something in his book about how she... I just read the wiki summary how she didn't really know how to curtsy when she met the queen, right? If that's any signal of how prepared Harry Mm. made her, then I blame him at some level for not, uh, for setting her up to fail. Yeah. You know what's not spoken about enough, I think, is so much of how you feel about them, I suppose, has to, comes down to her assumptions about how she actually felt and what her ambition was. Because if you believe that she married him to sort of marry up, and to get the fame and the the value of being part of the royal family, then it's hard to feel sympathy for her. If she actually just met this Harry fella and fell in love with him, and now she has to deal with all of this, it's a totally different story. And I think, I guess the people who don't like her, 
think that it's the former and the people who like her say it's the latter. Which do you think it is? I think it's not really fair for me to say, but I think it's the former. That she married for the status. I think so. She talks in her episode, her podcast episode with Serena Williams about ambition. And she keeps saying like, why do people hate ambitious women? They hate ambitious women. Look at us. We're so ambitious. And she kept putting herself on a par with Serena Williams, who's one of the most respected, incredible people that, you know, in terms of her her athletic ability and how hard she worked and her triumphs and stuff. She's unparalleled. And there are a few people in sports, in any sport that are totally unparalleled to that extent, like her. You could talk about Messi, the footballer or whatever, but then there's Ronaldo and people like that. There's always like one Federer, then there's also Nadal, you know, Serena is just like a part. And I just thought how it just felt, but I already had this bias, you know, but it just felt a little bit like the arrogance to put yourself on the same level as Serena. And I thought, I want you, Megan, to tell us, okay, but what is your ambition? I want you to lay it out for us. What, what is ambitious about you? And what is it that people don't like in your ambition? Is that marrying into the crown? Is that an ambition? And I think that's the people can have that ambition. You can want to marry up. People do that. I don't have a problem with that. But I think the problem is then hearing about doing it and then not wanting to do the duties that come with that, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So on the one hand, she was a quite successful actress, very much on the way up. Potentially. Potentially. But I mean, I would have bet on her horse very much Hmm. from having watched the show Suits. Did you watch it? Oh yeah. Okay. Was it good? Great show. It was great. It was both popular and beloved and her character in particular. I think in another world, she would have some room to grow as an actress. She would have been a winning racehorse, you know, in that world. I'm, I'm quite certain. Which undermines the idea that it was just about ambition. On the other hand, being a C-list TV actor is nowhere near being in the crown. So it was quite a jump for her. It was a massive jump for her. There's no understating that. And there's also, um, it's also very possible that the, the dream of being a princess essentially was part of the attraction to Harry. That's the thing about it is, is, you know, to what extent are status and romance kind of linked in subconscious ways to begin with, right? Is there a clean distinction, a clean line you can draw between loving someone for precisely who they are mm-hmm. and loving them for their status. I wonder about that. Yeah, money, stuff like that. Ambition. You see like your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever is ambitious. <laughs> it's uh, it's exciting about them, right? Maybe if they're rich, that's exciting. And, and people can, like, that's what I was saying. People can marry up or they can marry for money and I don't have a problem with it. It just feels like if you're going to marry into this institution, you've you got to do, as you were alluding to, your homework. Mm-hmm. And just a bit of homework, you'd have seen how Diana who was another person who didn't really fit with the royals, how she was treated, which which wasn't very well. Mm-hmm. But I sort of have this, I do have some sympathy for her. And I have the same sympathy I suppose I would have for maybe a supermodel who uh, is now talking about uh, exposing the industry because everybody wants you to be skinny. And that, you know, all the messages she's getting about you should be skinnier and that kind of thing. And I, I do have sympathy for that. But I also feel like you did sort of get into a very superficial industry. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess, part of it. Most of us don't even have the looks to be supermodels. With Megan's case, most of us don't have the access to a prince or a princess, you know. So I think that's where I find How much it. blame do you place on Harry? A lot as well. I think you make a really good point that he clearly didn't prepare her enough. I think he's not very smart. Prince Harry. I'm not a royalist. I'm also not anti-royal. I grew up being anti-royal, I think. And then I started to see them more like the Kardashians that they are. Mm -hmm. They don't have any real power. I don't know the stats around how Brits feel. Anecdotally, I could say that I think Australians and Canadians are even more into the royal family than us. It's like the first Mm. thing they ask about. And I grew up knowing relatively little about them. And then you get to The Crown came out, the TV series, and the whole Meghan stuff, obviously Diana as well. And it, be- it became this huge thing. Mm-hmm. He really doesn't seem very smart. I've read uh, his book, and I know it's ghostwritten, and you can tell. And he seems like he's hearing a lot of progressive stuff, maybe ideas that we, we know of from woke culture. He talks a lot about unconscious bias. He, there's a lot of catchphrases he comes out with. And it feels like it's the first time he's heard them. And he's, he's sort of telling the rest of us about this amazing thing he's heard about. And the rest of us are like, well, we've known about this for years, man. Like, we've been living in the real world, working jobs, paying bills. You've been sat there, not having the best life. I don't, I'm not saying like he has the best life, but I think if you are, to finish my point here, I think I would just say that the royals are in a really difficult position right now because they're trying to get modern sometimes. I mean, William said a few things as well. They talk about mental health and these kinds of things. And they're, they're very, you know, noble aspirations and whatever. They're in a bit of a bind though, because it feels a little bit like the Tsar in Russia, like appealing to the Bolsheviks. They're trying to appeal to sort of the left. Mm -hmm. And that's great. And the left will like them more, but ultimately the idea of a monarchy in, on the left doesn't hold up. So I don't know where they can go. I wonder somewhere. if the left will like them more though, because sometimes if you make a concession to people that are fundamentally against you, it actually backfires and they they ask for more. Like is yeah. the modern, the monarchy and the royals, they 
can't by definition be modern. Mm -hmm. They are a symbol of the old. And that's, I think, where their power lies. Because we humans have this tendency, you could even call it a bias, to worship the old. The older something is, the more legitimate it is. Why we laugh at the Book of Mormon, but not at the Bible. Yeah. Right? It's just time. And the the royals have that as their main source, I think, of legitimacy is how long they've been around, the unbroken chain of succession. And so, you know, I wonder how wise it is for them to try to modernize, to try to, you know, I just, I'm not sure they can do it well because they're so clearly out of touch. And that's not a criticism. It's anyone, if I were a royal, I'd be very out of touch. You can't not be. Yeah. By definition, part of your purpose is to be out of touch. But when Harry says these things, when he talks about unconscious bias and, and so forth, it is quite clear that he's out of his depth. And one part, one thing he did that I felt quite wrong to me was in the Oprah interview, and I think maybe again in, in a later interview, he accuses an unnamed member of his family of sort of wondering about what the skin color of the baby would be, how dark the baby would be. This to me, the way he went about this was so suspicious to me. If you think about this, for uh, one of two things is true. Either someone in the royal family made a truly heinous racist comment about not wanting the baby to be too dark, or someone in the royal family just made a very innocent comment wondering what the what the mixture of them would look like, which is something everyone who's ever had a baby has wondered about their forthcoming baby. You know, how are these two different people going to blend into this new life? So it's either totally racist comment or totally innocent comment. Now, if it was a totally racist comment, then he did a bad thing by casting that accusation at the whole family and just letting the public's mind, imagination wonder and go wild about who it could be rather than really holding the individual responsible who said that racist thing or simply not saying it at all because you don't want to air your family's dirty laundry like that. Like either don't say it or name the specific person that said that heinous thing so that we know who in the royal family is really a hardened enough racist to not want a baby to be as certainly light-skinned black as that baby is likely to be given that Megan is not very dark-skinned to begin with, right? You have to be a real hardened racist to worry that that baby is going to be too dark, right? So either that's the case or it was a totally innocent comment, in which case he also did a, a very bad thing by making the accusation vague enough by basically playing it up and playing this card where it really was just maybe intended as totally innocent comment and then casting that accusation of racism at the whole family. It was very fishy. Now, if he, if he had said, this person said this and quoted them, said, this person said, I don't want the baby to be too dark, then I respect that because um, it, it would be a horrible comment. But the way he went about it in this strategic, vague way is very suspicious and makes me think that the whole story is BS or a kind of spin so as to have something to throw at them when they throw at him that he's a traitor and an attention seeker. If he can make them racist, then he is he's not the aggressor, he's the victim. Would you be offended if somebody asked you about your child, what skin color they might be? No, no. I mean, so again, if they were saying, oh God, I hope your baby isn't too dark. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, fuck off. I'm never talking to you again. Even, I mean, even a racist would know not to say that to Harry, presumably. I mean, I, I'm making assumptions here again, but you'd think like, yeah. gosh, I hope, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't add up. It, it, I mean, it does happen. Of course, there are racists who say things, but right. to him, why would they? But if, you know, if, if someone just wondered oh, well, what is the mixture of me and my girlfriend or my wife mm -hmm. going to look like yeah. if we were of two different races? That would be, I'm sure it'd be something that we had talked about. Maybe it's over the line to, to say it, but it's not racist, right? Sure. So you ha he, he was vague. He, was, he had a studied, prepared kind of vagueness about the accusation, which was the most wrong thing about it. If you were going to accuse someone of being a pedophile, right? Yeah. you would not say oh, you know, someone in my family talked about liking kids. You'd be like, hold on, hold on a second. Be very specific with what you're saying. Name the person and say exactly how they said it. Did they say, oh, the, the, that kid from Stranger Things is cute, like in an innocent way, or did they say, I'm sexually attracted? So you yeah. have to- it, Be careful it, not to say the full thing there. Cause yeah, because someone's going to cut that up. Coleman Hughes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So if you're going to make an accusation, accusation of something that serious, you have to be specific with it. And his lack of specificity to me was a big red flag about his character and his motivation in sort of going on the whole PR mm -hmm. campaign that he's on.
Yeah, I do have a, I do have sympathy for him. I think sometimes we can be guilty, all of us, particularly me, actually, of of being too black or white. Or, you know, excuse because that's what we're talking about the, the the pun, I suppose. But too divisive. Like you either hate someone, you love him, and he had a really difficult upbringing. Not compared to people who can't pay their bills, of course. But uh, his his mum died when he was, I think, twelve. Mm-hmm. Got no love from his father, grandparents, was sort of, he speaks of the way he was expected, like at his mother's funeral to sort of wave at the press and things like that. And he was very much like his book says, brought up as a spare. There's even a reference to sort of the assumption that if William needed a kidney or something, he was the one to give it. William and and Prince Charles at the time, you know, they couldn't share a flight together, but no one minded which flight Harry went on. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing will get you because you you can only compare to the environment that you're in. So I I wonder if what's happening is he's thinking, this has not been fair to me. And we've seen this in literature and things like over and over, the one who feels spurned. You get it a lot in Shakespeare kind of thing. You're like spurned. And so he, it feels like he's like, right, I'm done with this. I'm out. Mm -hmm. I think I don't know how much money he had, but I've heard it might be like he would have had 10 million pounds or something like that, right? Which is a bit more in dollars. By doing all this, he got $100 million for the Netflix documentary. He got 20 million at least for the book. And I'm not sure how much they got for the Spotify series. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's enough to live on. That's enough for them to go, okay, we made it. So it might be that they go off right off into the sunshine now. I doubt it because they're ambitious and they want to be in the media and stuff. But that, Mm -hmm. I would understand why they would want to do that, you know? What is Harry's ambition? To have enough money to live on independently of his family, perhaps. I don't think of that as ambitious. No, but it's, but I suppose it's an ambition outside of what he would have had, which is just sit there and be the spare. Right. No, I, I totally get that. I think it was clearly extremely frustrating and unlucky of him to be born into to be born constantly compared to the brother, mm-hmm. which is at some level something everyone deals with, but it is magnified when you're in the public spotlight and there is such a big difference between the firstborn and the secondborn. In a sense that one is literally going to be king and one is is not. That's a psychological complex that could screw with anyone. At the same time, I do wonder if by adulthood you are supposed to begin to take responsibility for your own mental health and stop blaming others Mm -hmm. and try to become a well-adjusted and non-bitter human being. And I'm not saying that he is. Again, I haven't read them. He is. (laughs) He's very bitter. Yeah. He's very defensive. Any interview, any interview you see when people, I feel like one of the reasons he's gone to America is because he's getting a bit of an easier time there Mm -hmm. in the UK. They're pushing him probably because of what you said, it is a bit more pro-royal or I don't know what. He's getting a hard time from people. And he's like, he's pouncing before the question's even been asked whenever anyone's shed any doubt on his story. Yeah, yeah. But we know that feeling. You know that feeling, right? When you're when you're defensive, particularly when it involves yeah, sure. your, your wife or girlfriend or whatever it might be. I mean, I, I'm, I don't have like an aggressive bone in my body, but I remember like the only time I got like close to being aggressive, I was playing soccer, like a mixed game with my my girlfriend and we all played together in like Argentina and this guy was being too rough like because it was a mixed game it was just supposed to be fun and he was like pushing me a lot and he was pushing her and I lost my temper yeah. and I remember I went up and I went and I pushed him like and he didn't move he was like much stronger than me so I went and he just like was completely still which is very embarrassing for me because I'd been like in front of my new girlfriend at the time but it's so different like when you, you know there is that sort of um, testosterone comes out the teeth start to bear and he's getting that from like the world he feels having a go at his girlfriend and that they're being racist. Right. I mean, I totally get that. And I think Americans, I don't think we care that much about Harry. I don't think my perception is we're neither pro nor anti. And probably, like I said, there is definitely a level of sympathy for the racism accusation in America. Mm. I was talking to a black British friend the other day and point she made is that in Britain, Megan's light skin color among many black people would disqualify her from owning the black identity, right? Many would say, you are too light-skinned. You do not actually know what it's like to be black and to be dark. And you should not go around playing the race card like you do. Now in America, black people would not have that attitude. Despite Megan being very light-skinned, no one would have a problem. Very few would have a problem identifying her as black and allowing her to identify as a black woman and so forth. And that just has to do with the different ways that race has evolved in in both countries, the social history of where that boundary has been drawn. It's totally contingent. What do you think that is? 
Well, in America, there has been intermixing between blacks and whites for hundreds of years since slavery. So there, for a very long time, there have been millions of people that are Meghan Markle's skin complexion who were for, you know, up until 1964 categorized as black, um, many of whom were categorized as black and therefore subject to second class citizenship. So we have a long history of seeing lighter skinned people as black um, as just as black as darker skinned people, whereas the UK doesn't have that mm-hmm. history. The UK has more recent immigration from the Caribbean and from West Africa and a smaller population and therefore fewer mixed race people and also no history of a formalized apartheid system where lighter skinned black people were legally and socially black. So it beca- it makes more sense to to not necessarily accept that a mixed person is black, whereas that's the inertia of American social history. Mm. It's so complex, isn't it? Because I, I didn't know she even had any uh, minority status at all for the first like two, three years mm-hmm. uh, until the accusations came out. And most people I've spoken to have said the same thing. It appears the press did know, and that's where it gets murky because the ac- accusations against the press still stand. It doesn't matter, the rest of us didn't realize. I thought she could have looked, you know, I grew up with a lot of Jewish people. She could look Jewish to me. Right. She could look uh, Latina to mm-hmm. me. I, but I, did, I just didn't even care. Yeah. But obviously the royal family is this institution of very white, it's the Church of England, it's religious white group, the firm, they call it. And it's, I think it's a little bit cult-like as well. Mm-hmm. So to, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that there was some level of racism coming from either them or, or the press. Do you think actually that it was? Mm. I mean, if you make the comparison with Diana's treatment, who is as white as it gets and is the closest comparison case, do you think that racism was involved in that, in Meghan Markle's? I think there's two possible, there's two possible routes we can go down. So one is that racism was part of the cause of some of the hatred towards her. And some is that there's hatred towards her because she is somebody going into the royal family and not wanting to do the duties like Kate does, just like Diana did. And that some, a small percentage of people in the media have said things that are a little bit racist. So it wasn't the cause of it, of the hatred or whatever, but they've there has been some racist some racism in the articles written about them. My guess is that if it were not Meghan Markle, but an analogous white C-list actress that came in a bit clueless about the crown and had the same kind of infights, that probably 90% of the hostility would have been the same. Yeah. So it's just that tiny extra percent. And there are, there are racist people, you know, because I think you and I have both spoken a lot against some of the progressive movement. We call it woke, but you're not supposed to call it woke anymore because it's sort of simplifying the whole thing. And this accusation of just like everything's racist, mm-hmm. right? And I went maybe quite far with that. And I'm starting to have not second thoughts as such, because I still feel that way, but I've gone on a few more podcasts that are a little bit to the right. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some of the comments and the mm-hmm. chat just because I'm Jewish. And I don't even know how they know half the time. And you come back from like, so Tim Paul is quite, he's, he's even like center, right? I don't even think he's that far or anything. You come back and you look at the comments and every other one is, he's a J word. He's a this, he's a that. And I think, oh, Okay, there are a lot, and even if it's only 1% of the world, right, mm-hmm. or 1% of America, it's still, what, 3.5 million people who would do that to whether a Jewish person, a Latino person, a black person, whatever, you know? Yeah. No, it is definitely a big problem. I don't know if I would call Tim Pool center right at this point. I think he's yeah, maybe. drifted, and there may be, in my view, an audience capture phenomenon there because the kinds of topics he was dealing with five years ago compared to now seem to have narrowed down to topics that only the right likes, whereas he used to have. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a problem that all of us content creators can face. And some deal with it differently than others. Some go completely, they get sucked fully into the the beam of attention and so forth. And others manage not to as much. Yeah. I made 50 videos about Tom Cruise. 50? Yeah, I think 50. Or, or related to, to Scientology. So maybe 20 of those wow. were about Tom Cruise because they just did so well. Yeah. And it brought in subscribers. Yeah. And people liked it. And then you get people in the comments saying, like, you're obsessed with Tom Cruise. I'm like, no, you are. You're, you guys are obsessed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're obsessed with Tom Cruise. You're obsessed with Meghan Markle. Maybe we are. Maybe yeah. we're not. But like, you know, I, I remember when I used to work at um, my first ever job, I was 21. I worked at HarperCollins uh, Book Publishers. And I was a bit snobby at that age, just out, out of university, had done my English literature degree. So I was all into that stuff. And I was really upset to learn that some of these really nice books that I liked were actually losing money. And this one that was Justin Bieber, who had like, it was a picture book of like, here's Justin with a motorcycle. Here's Justin doing something else. And that was like the biggest seller of all time, times 20 for Mm -hmm. HarperCollins. It was like killing it. It it smashed like Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, all that stuff. 
it just went way past that. And I was, because I was quite snobbish and, you know, new and out of school, just, I was like really upset. And I remember speaking to my boss and saying, what's, what's the deal with this? How can we do? And she said like, look, you've got to forget that because that stuff is what allows us to print the really nice stuff. Right. You've got to do it. So I just said to myself, right, I, I'm going to keep doing all the interesting, weird culty things and the, the psychological stuff. But, you know, Tom Cruise. And- to me, the Bieber paradox is the best example of, of how thick all of our bubbles are, hmm. right? The most popular artist in the world, and I've never met a single fan. <laughs> so what does that say? That, what that says is the set of people I meet in day-to-day life is highly non-random, highly selected based on who I am, what I like. And I think it was Slate Star Codex, Scott Alexander, who had this analogy that we are all basically living in dark matter worlds where it's like, we're all in the universe, but dark matter is like, it's all there, but you just can't see it. That's what it's like to be in the world. Like we're all in these very thick social bubbles. I meet people all the time on the street who, you know, are, are a fan of me. And to them, I'm a famous person, right? And they think that I'm getting mobbed on the street all day long, but no, I'm just famous in your bubble, right? Like I, I'm not a famous person. I, I could, I set this up misleadingly because I don't get stopped all the time. Right. But when I do, people assume that I get stopped all the time. Yeah, of course. Um, which I've is never totally been not true. Right. I've never been stopped ever. But there are certain, you know, if you were to get in a room with your hardcore podcast mm. fan base, many of them would assume that you are 10 times more famous than you are. Yeah. Because we all forget to correct for our bubbles. That's true. I get, I get email and I reply and I try and it's getting harder, of course, but I try and reply as much as possible. Yeah. And then people reply to that saying, this must be a bot or an assistant writing for you. This can't right. be the Andrew. Go- what are you talking? What are you, yeah. you know, it, but you're right. It's a, it's a complete bubble thing. I find that, I mean, I was just watching Elvis last night, the, the movie. Mm-hmm. And I thought exactly what you just said about Justin Bieber. Of course, it's a little bit different, but I, I said, I don't think I've ever met someone who I'm like, Hey, what are you listening to? And they're like, just, just some Elvis. Whereas Frank Sinatra. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Beatles, Rolling Stones. Me too. Stuff from that. Classical music, Tchaikovsky. Mm-hmm. Fine. I've never heard someone listen to Elvis. Mm-hmm. You never heard someone listen to Elvis? Never. What the fuck? <laughs> That's one of something swears, else, by the way. We get like three swears now Okay, what is it every 20 minutes? Set the clock again. <laughs> um, I mean, that. I'm very ignorant about Elvis's music, so what I'm going to say might be very ignorant. But there may be some element of that, which is that Elvis's music may not have aged as well as the Beatles and Sinatra. I think there is a big dynamic in music and art, which is that, I call this the flow rider effect, right? That song, Low. Mm. Do you remember that song? Low, 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 low. We should just do this. Muggy, sweat, pants. Yeah. <laughs> so like that's, that, that song, when I was about 10 years old, felt like it was number one for like two years. <laughs> yeah. And I'm only exaggerating a little bit. If you actually look at the, tra- it was number one for like wow. a year. Yeah. No one gives a fuck about it now. No one gives a fuck about flow rider. And yet there are, so- there are Beatles songs, there are, you know, Michael, Jackson is a perfect example, right? Mm-hmm. You show a five-year-old Michael Jackson today, odds are they're going to love it. If you show Michael Jackson a five-year-old, make sure it's love that it way even more. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> yes, Michael Jackson's, you're right. That's last. So time. yeah, there's, you can't always tell in the moment which music is timeless and which music is attractive because of a cultural moment that's going to change. Some music appeals to human nature, mainly, to quote a Michael Jackson song. <laughs> and others appeal, appeal to cultural fads and trends that once they fade, look very strange in hindsight. There are some Elvis fans listening to this who are We're going to disagree, I know. They're going, the, the, what do you mean? Hound dogs are beautiful. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. And I actually could be wrong. My general point still stands, even if Elvis may, is right. not an example. You know, you know what's an interesting one is uh, Robbie Williams. Have you heard of Robbie Williams? Mm. Exactly. So Robbie Williams, and again, people are you know, always disagreeing or whatever, listening. I can imagine them all shouting in their cars, what are you talking about? Is probably, he's the most famous pop star on the planet. And you've never heard of currently? him. Currently? Possibly currently, but definitely 10 years ago. Okay. Right? Dash, no? Robbie Williams? You were in Australia, right? So you know, one of the biggest pop stars in the world? Yeah. Okay. Americans, no one's heard of him. No. But I'm not, I'm not saying like it was a British sensation. Uh-huh. I'm saying like Argentina, anywhere I've lived, Colombia. You could go to like, I don't even know, like the depths of some obscure place. Mm-hmm. And he is like, like Madonna times 10 in terms of how famous Justin Bieber levels. Right. Nobody in the entirety of America, and I think probably Canada, has heard of him. Mm-hmm. The strangest thing ever. Yeah. What's going on? Social bubbles. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it is. If it's like his name was too similar to Robin Williams. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the first thing I thought of. Yeah. I asked, I got to interview Robbie a few for this podcast. Mm. Biggest moment of my life. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I cannot, because I grew up as a fan. You know, he was my Justin Bieber, you know, when I was 15. Right. Uh, and I liked all the high, you know, the more, the, the radio heads and all those kinds of things. But I was just like, I went through a phase of being proudly populist. And I just loved him. Mm-hmm. And it was just, I, over the years, I came to learn, like, no one in America knows who that guy, apart from people with, like, Latino parents and lineage and stuff like that sometimes have, because mm-hmm. he's so big in, in, other, in South America and Central America. But uh, I had him on, and I was so excited, but most of my audience are American. Mm-hmm. So everyone was just like, oh, another episode. Right. And I wanted to be like, no, this is, like, my thing with, like, you know, much more famous than Justin Timberlake, but Justin Timberlake guy. And, yeah, no one cared. You should have titled, titled it more famous than Justin Bieber. <laughs> that probably would have offended him, but Americans would have clicked. He's had like more number one albums in the UK than he's had the most ever, and like some more than um, the Beatles, more than yeah. Elvis, um, the Rolling Stones, like mad, but a pop star. Yeah, I mean, Americans, we tend because we know we're the hub of entertainment for the world. We don't really pay attention to too much that comes from the rest of the world. I mean, it has to be incredible and incredibly branded to really break through Spice in Girls. America. Spice Girls worked. Mm-hmm. Parasite. That was, yeah, that movie was really, really good. I'm thinking of British bands that make it in America. I think there are quite a few though, aren't there? Yeah, there, there are. Loads of them, but just Robbie didn't for whatever reason. That's my nickname. But even the British bands that made it in America, they almost sing with an American accent or an accent that is not identifiably British. Like there's a lot of British bands you wouldn't know they're British from from the accent. Yeah, that's that's right. something that they that's, sing with. Yeah, that's that's like a, certainly you'd never know Adele was British. That's called something. I don't know what it is, but it's like well firstly there's that transatlantic accent. You know that one that doesn't exist. Do you know that accent in the it's in the movies yeah, in like yeah. the 1940s. Like, ah, what do you mean? <laughs> hey, you're talking to me, fella. Yeah. <laughs> My name's George Bailey. George Bailey you say. Wow. <laughs> Why that's an interesting name. And obviously yeah, no one spoke that way and I think there's something to that in, in music as well. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere in between the two sometimes when especially when English people are singing. And we I think I, you know, I like to sing a little bit and I mm-hmm. used to sing a little bit American as well. Yeah. And then we go through like a phase when you're 17 where you're like anti that and you, mm-hmm. you sing really British. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you have you heard I mean the Arctic Monkeys? Yeah. They sing not just in cuz it's it all almost becomes like you almost like so it starts being a bit nationalistic almost so you've got lily allen do you know lily allen she's yeah so she yep. sings very english as well but then they're even the arctic monkeys are singing regional they're from sheffield yeah and, and so, well, well when people sing english they don't sing posh english right they, they tend s- not to no because that's not, not cool to. is yeah, it it's not cool yeah well hello i'm having yeah <laughs> there must be someone there must be some there must I'm be some sure people we're are. not thinking of who are like they sing really posh yeah but the beatles you, you i don't think you'd all, sometimes they would sort of talk sing mm-hmm. and you heard the scouse yeah. accent uh, yeah. liverpool accent uh the beatles is that kind of thing would come yeah. out but uh arctic monkeys really do that that sheffield mm-hmm. i bet that you look good on the dance floor that, yeah that kind of thing but yeah what do you think of trevor noah you know i haven't followed his work in a long time i did his podcast years ago oh and argued against reparations okay. and uh I'd love to go back and listen to that. I don't know. I think he's, you know, he's pretty funny. He's pretty smart. And um, I don't know. What's, what, what, why do you bring him up? I'm he's curious. made like headlines around here at the moment because he said that Britain is a racist country uh, about the whole Megan. As opposed to all the other countries. Yeah, I not. think so. He seems to be focusing on it. He's from South Africa, man. You know, like, uh-huh. like wow. It gets people's back up, backs up a bit. And he's, he, he said stuff about Megan, but also about Rishi Sunak, who's the prime minister at the moment. Mm-hmm. He's of Indian or Asian heritage. I'm not sure exactly where actually and he said oh I don't know it just frustrates me because he put out like a thing saying like oh look at the backlash to this it shows that we're still living in a racist society and I've not there hasn't been any backlash I think as far as I know I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think this, this is a problem on both sides of sort of cherry picking the tiniest right. things but yeah that's Trevor Noah for you I mean the claim that British that, that Britain's a racist country the UK is a racist country to me when people say these things I think you know the only way that that's a meaningful sentence is if you're saying it's more racist than your average country Mm. or especially racist relative to the rest of the world, which to me is nonsense. I mean, if you travel the world, if you study, if you get out of the West, Western centric viewpoint, America, English speaking, Western Europe centric viewpoint and study attitudes towards race in China, in India, in Russia, in South America, in Africa, and you were to try to rank the countries in terms of how racist the average person is, right? And there are some studies that have tried to do this. There's a global values survey about 10 years ago that was published in the Washington Post, which just asked a representative sample of Earth's citizens everywhere. Mm. How would you feel if a person of a different race moved in next door? The finding was not that Britain and America were the most racist countries by that metric. The finding was that we're the least. Right. And it makes sense that we are the least because 
in America's case and in Britain's case, I think we, first of all, there's enlightenment values. There is a, a goal of treating people as individuals, even though it's not always lived up to. In many places in the world, that goal does not even exist. Mm. That value, the value that makes you a hypocrite when racism does surface, doesn't exist, right? There's no hypocrisy to be had because there's no goal culturally or politically to not be racist. Bigotry is just so the norm and so accepted in most parts of the world. Whereas in our societies, we have tried and made mistakes along the way to fight it. Mm. And then secondly, we, in America at least, we've dealt with the challenge of trying to be pretty much the first large multi-ethnic democracy with no ethnic definition of what it is to be an American. And most countries throughout history have said what it is to be a citizen of this country is to be, is to speak this language and to be of this ethnic group. Mm -hmm. That's so taken for granted. That's what the concept of a nation state is. It's to make a state out of a nation, a people. Wow. America, because of historical circumstances, went a different route, which is this is not a, a state comprised of an ethnicity. This is a state where anyone can be an American. Mm -hmm. And that's a very difficult thing to do because then you get into tensions between people, right? It, at some level, it's much easier to say, actually, just we're going to put a fence around my ethnic group. We're going to make it a country and good fences make good neighbors, right? Yeah. That's what borders are. That's the logic of borders. It's why they can help create peace because you're putting a wall between people that would otherwise fight. And sometimes they still do fight, but... Is the UK like the States in that sense? No, not quite. I mean, it is now more and more. Mm. Yes. I suppose more technically more, it's yeah. Church of England is the is the, the head of the States. Right. Yeah, the UK is is a different example, but it's not, it's certainly, you know, America has had this goal since the inception. Sure. Israel's an interesting one, isn't it? Because that's a nation state. Yeah. And a lot of people are anti-Israel, and I understand that. And then I, I coming from a Jewish family and, and that kind of thing, obviously I've seen over the years a lot of anti-Semitism or whatever, you know, like people, everyone has of their own minority or whatever. But it makes me keenly aware that, or it gives me a feeling that if Israel weren't there, it could get worse. Things could get bad. They might not. If Israel weren't there, things would be a defensive, a deterrent. A deterrent. To... To global anti-Semitism or... Yeah, to, to something bad happening. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my sister had to go to a school in, in, in England. She went to a Jewish school. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't go to school like that. I, and I don't agree with having segregated schools like that. I don't like that. Or faith schools. But she did. And it's like the security is like mad, like barbed wire and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, and when she's come out, she's been chased down the streets by people shouting, you Jewish, this and that. And again, it's like, it's so rare. It's such a small percentage of society, but it's there. Mm -hmm. But there are definitely problems, particularly like in France, it gets really bad. Mm -hmm. And it can't, there is a, there's like a conflict between sort of some parts of like the Muslim population and the Jewish population that yeah. can happen sometimes. So in in France and in, in parts of the Middle East and stuff and where, I don't know, there's a fear and it, it might be rooted in nothing or it might be rooted in a lot of evidence. I don't know, but there's a fear among a lot of Jewish people. It could happen again, mm -hmm. that they get sort of grouped up and carry, you know, and there's just a feeling like, no, but that's not going to happen because Israel's there. Well, that was the logic of Israel's creation. Yeah. And it made sense. The Zionists from the 1880s onward decided that because of the pogroms in Eastern Europe, that no one is going to protect us. We cannot rely on the world to protect us. We have to protect ourselves. And that's why they founded the state of Israel. And in the wake of the Holocaust, the world had quite a bit of, well, uh, sympathy for that rationale. I mean, what had just happened is that the world had essentially let Germany genocide the Jews and most countries had, you know, turned away Jewish refugees, right? Like the world let that happen. So the world could not then turn around and say, actually, no, you guys don't need your own state. Yeah. At that time, it made, it made perfect sense. And uh, Aliyah made perfect sense, right? Like that, the notion that any Jew anywhere in the world that feels unsafe can come here and they will preferentially get citizenship over yeah. people of other ethnic groups. In most situations, that would look like a racist immigration policy, right? In the situation of a group that has just narrowly escaped total annihilation while the world watched or did far too little too late, that looks like a very sane and understandable policy. Now, does that make does that policy make sense today? I had Benny Morris on my podcast recently, who's an Israeli historian, preeminent Israeli historian, and a big defender of Israel, and would nevertheless said at this point, Aliyah is not a policy he any longer supports because you know, the historical context where it was born is no longer true. I mean, yes, there is anti-Semitism in various places, but at the time that policy 
was sort of conceived, it was realistic to expect another Holocaust in the short term, right? Like there was no guarantee in 1945 that it wasn't going to happen again in a year, mm. right? We can we know with hindsight that it didn't, but there was no prospective guarantee that you know, a resurgent Germany or somewhere else wasn't just going to finish the job. Yeah. It's complicated as well, I think, because I think you might, one might have a different perspective living in either America or Israel. In Israel, everyone's Jewish and it's sort of, you know, and in America, it's really fascinating as a Jewish person from outside of America. Well, not, not everyone's Jewish. Um, what? In Israel? In oh, Israel sorry, yeah, yeah. you're yeah. right. Well, 80% or something, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, good point. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, but, but I mean, like lots of people around you are yeah. and of all social stratus, there's strata, strata, you know, mm-hmm. in, in every level, Jewish people, are, you know, going to America is great and fascinating yeah as a jewish person from outside of there because it's sort of really got into the culture in a way that it hasn't done in other countries what has judaism jewish oh, culture yeah. yeah larry david woody allen totally Jerry seinfeld mm-hmm. people you hear people who are not even jewish say like calling someone a schmuck mm-hmm. and everyone knows what that means mm-hmm. and that is not an experience that those of us from outside of america have ever experienced you know we don't it, people they would know the word schmuck but that's that's about it and especially outside of london so so I grew up in North London, which is where most Jewish people grew up. But as soon as you move away, I, m- I went up to study in Leeds in the north of England. And like they've never, a lot of them, there are Jewish people up there, of course, but a lot of them have never seen a Jew before. Mm-hmm. And people would make jokes when I got to university. It was like, where are your horns? And where are you? And all this kind of thing. I was like, okay, okay. And you know, why? Oh, you, you can't. One thing I'll say though, that is actually the same in America about the rural oh, urban. Oh, right, yeah. So I grew up in and around New York City. I grew up, I mean, I think the high school I went to was probably 30% Jewish. Oh, I went to like six bar mitzvahs in seventh grade. Oh, yeah. And it was in a town called Livingston and they used to call it Livingstein. Right. That's what the Jewish kids used to call it. So I was very familiar with and I knew all the Jewish holidays. I knew the song. I knew the bar mitzvah songs. I was very, huh. you know, it, it seemed very, didn't seem like a strange thing to me. Interesting. But if you go, I mean, there's many Jews. I think Mark Cuban talked about this who grew up in other places, you know, outside of New York City, which is where the vast majority of American Jews live in and around, maybe a little bit in LA, a little bit in Miami. But if, if you live anywhere else, it's like you're encountering people that have never met a Jewish person and make all those crazy jokes about the horns and the money grubbing, all those, you know, messed up jokes. And at the end of the day, Jews are only 1% of the American population, maybe two. Less than the UK. Less than 1%, exactly. I, th- I think. Yeah, Again, so. I don't want to be wrong on the podcast, but I think so. Yeah. It's weird. So I, and I, I feel like that's when, I guess a Jewish person living in Israel and New York might feel in some ways a bit sort of safer. And those of us outside, it's just stories about like getting chased and getting shouted. And you think, oh God, thank, thank God. It, it, is, it is a comfort that Israel exists. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that what Israel does is right most of the time. It's government and the, the way they settle. You know, a lot of the stuff they do is awful. Mm-hmm. I just like to explain it because most of, especially on YouTube, but online is like so anti-Zionist. And to be Zionist is like a bad word now. Mm-hmm. And I like to explain just from... I guess in a, to sort of play or, or not play on, but in what's the word? Invoke, inspire some empathy from people. It's like, I'm not saying Israel's great. It's just like for us, it's like, thank God it's there. And it is a weird thing. Like you say, it's a weird, like this nation state because it is a state that is, I guess, racist in a sense. It is like mm-hmm. you get preferential treatment if you are Jewish. Yeah. If they were to just like say, become one state with Palestine and to let those people who are not Jewish in, if it became more than 50% not Jewish, then the state wouldn't be a Jewish state anymore. They mm-hmm. wouldn't vote for Jewish politicians. So that's one of the craziest things going on today in like a non-racist world that we, that we strive for. You've got a country that clearly is. And I sort of defend that. Do you know what I mean? I do. So I think we should acknowledge the fundamental good luck that m- our nations live in, which is to say the United States is not surrounded by five or six nations that are not a barely historical kind of Sometimes, to some degree, current enemies that have invaded us multiple times within living memory mm. that we're, we're not facing. Like the history of Israel since its inception has basically been the history of being invaded and attacked. You know, like you can talk about the, the specific start and end dates of each war and each intifada and each, you know, global campaign to, you know, hijack planes with Israelis on them, right? But if you look at a bird's eye view, it's just basically a constant state of deterring, th- of, of combating threats, right? And, and it flares up and it flares down, but it just never goes away. And it's surrounded and it's the size of New Jersey. And so if you ask, what is it that has caused Jews in Israel to rally so much around their Jewish identity and to 
there's no separation of, 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 you know, synagogue and state there. So there are aspects of the government that do privilege and uh, that do privilege Jewish religious practices. We ask, what is it that has caused that? Is it that they are more ethnocentric than Western European and American states? Or is it the fact that they are besieged and have their attitude towards group identity has been shaped by constant need for group survival. Mm. It's something analogy I think my friend makes is that, you know, consider how America and Britain to some extent reacted to just two planes, right? Hitting our, but we invaded and destroyed two countries. Yeah. Went on a 20 year sort of forever war. You know, imagine how we would react if that were just like a yearly occurrence, right? Mm. This is how people react when they are threatened, you know, 24-7 with rocket attacks, with terrorist attacks, with full-blown wars. And Israel has managed to defend itself extremely effectively, especially in the last, say, 50 years. But the, you know, the consequences of its successful defense have been global pariah status. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's no greater sort of, there's no greater push towards sort of racism and things like that than the threat. Or like, I think I saw some study where they got rid of they were able to mute, scientists would collect, sort of mute your amygdala, the threat sensor in the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did it on people who held racist views. Mm-hmm. While it was being sort of numbed, they didn't hold those views anymore about mm-hmm. immigration and things like that. They were much more welcoming and accepting. Right. So threat is really, that's the thing. I it's guess. basically yeah. fear by another name. Yeah. I mean, well, let's look at, you know, the, the, the pandemic, the start of it, the way mm-hmm. people, we just lose our humanity. Mm-hmm. We just, and we all do. And this idea, oh, look at those people in that country, how they're behaving. We're, you know, when you've got statistics of that, that high, You've got millions of people in a place who are acting one way. It suggests that there's something human about it that we would all that we would all do. Right. So that is my perception of Israel is there's the paradigm of racism that people put on the situation, and there's a paradigm of security and self-defense. Mm. I don't think that racism is the best way to understand Israeli treatment of Palestinians okay. or Israeli treatment of Arabs. I think that we in the West, because we have a history of racism we tend to graft that analysis onto situations that are quite different. I don't think that the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians is very similar at all to the situation between black and white Americans historically mm. or between white South Africans and black South Africans. I think what has happened in Israel is is a result of the constant threat of annihilation since 1947. Yeah. Well, then, so then I can hear people again, like screaming, listening to the podcast saying, but they stole, they stole the land that wasn't theirs. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me as well of something that you've spoken a lot about, which is reparations Mm -hmm. for slavery. And that, that involves sort of trying to balance things societally based on the past. I mean, where did you stand on that? And and has that, have have things changed over the years? Well, I mean, the first thing I, I would I understand people say they stole the land. Mm. That's not actually true historically. The land was purchased, largely purchased first from the Ottoman Empire and then from Arabs during British Mandate Palestine. So it wasn't mm. stolen or, I mean, not, not initially. And then land claimed in defensive wars is not quite the same as stealing, I think. But the larger point is that at some point, every border that we take for granted on the map today, almost all of them were ill-gotten mm. in some ways. There were Many of them were the result of expansionist wars all over the globe. How did China expand its, its, its borders? How did Russia? Uh, I mean, these, are, these were all bloody empires that expanded their borders via conquest and rape and theft and this is our, this is a history we're trailing as a species. It's only very recently in the history of our species that we have viewed conquest and war as a bad thing. So either we are going to litigate all of history in the court of modern public opinion, or we have to have some statute of limitations where, listen, yes, many generations ago, people did horrible things to each other, but we have to, while acknowledging that and taking it seriously and apologizing for it, all all of those symbolic gestures, I think are very important, those symbolic acknowledgements. We cannot be holding people today responsible for the sins of their great, great grandparents. It reminds me a little bit of um, the situation we had with the FARC in Colombia and uh, the IRA in Ireland, where they ended up holding a referendum in both those countries. Do we just forget their crimes and, you know, blank slate, and then they'll stop terrorizing us? 
And I believe I'm right in saying that the with the IRA, that's what happened to stop it going on. Mm-hmm. In Colombia, it didn't go that way. So the FARC con- continued uh, because the Colombian people voted not to forgive what they'd done. So they continued in, in action. So it's that thing of, do you just wipe a clean slate now and say, let's go on? I suppose what's difficult about that, well, again, I'm just thinking of the other side, the devil's advocate. People are saying, yeah, but because of those things, today there are ramifications, there are consequences. There are people who, there are certain groups who are less well-off than other groups because of that history and that needs to be addressed. I don't know how you'd even go about doing that in any kind of fair way. I don't think there's any scientific or real way to show how slavery affected any individual. Yeah. My ancestors were slaves in America. If I gave you some story about how that affected me, mm. that would be a BS story. In yeah. other words, it, it would be historical fiction. I don't, no one knows how these things affected you, right? Yeah. Um, but did you have, did you, I, I have no idea. Did you have like quite a middle-class upbringing? Yeah. So, so, so other people could say, well, maybe not you, but what about, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Well, then what about my dad? What about my grandparents? You know, what determines whether one person, if you want to go down that road, you, you start getting into very weird hypotheticals. Like what if I hadn't, my ancestors had never been brought as slaves to America and I grew up instead in Nigeria. Hmm. So do we want to be going down hypotheticals of who has benefited and who has not benefited from history's crimes? I think the way on my dad's side, my ancestors got to America was via slavery. And the long-term result of that is that I was born in America, which is the wealthiest nation and one of the nations with the highest social mobility, the ability to go from poor to rich. So is is this something we really want to, is, is this a question we want to be pretending we know the, the answers to? In any individual's case, you can't really say how these things affected in the long run and i think it's i think that people create stories i mean people create stories and the truth is that we we just don't actually know in any individual case do you this thing is the reason i'm poor from 400 years ago my family we don't we don't really know much about beyond my grandparents, I think my great grandparents and uh, they would have been in eastern europe and we don't know just we know there was some vague story passed down about pogroms and things and they they were impoverished and they came to the uk and it took like four generations to sort of have some footing in the country but we don't know because it gets like wiped and i'm, I'm fascinated and i asked my grandpa uh before he died a few years ago like well, what was our name because it wasn't gold and it, even my dad's was was goldstein and he changed it to gold because of like the anti-semitic attacks and stuff mm-hmm. but gold is still quite obviously jewish but before that it was some russian name mm-hmm. and we don't know what it was and i asked my grandpa if he could like remember and he came up with some word and it, i didn't i asked my dad later i was like yeah grandpa said that was the word that's what our name was and he was like no grandpa's you know doesn't remember it, that that's a yiddish word that means idiot right so that was <laughs> it, it I was like, right, we're definitely, that's not our name then. So, or maybe it was, you know, because people did used to get named after their professions. Maybe my family were idiots. I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, so um, we don't know. And I'd be fascinated to know. Do you know, I'm just, I'm just out of curiosity. Do you know about your, your lineage and your, your people before you? Yeah. My, my ancestors in a, in, on my dad's side were slaves on Thomas Jefferson's plantation, Monticello. The gardener was named Wormley Hughes. And he's my six or seven greats grandfather. And the only reason I know that is because it was Jefferson's plantation. They kept very close records. Do you think about about that? Do do they seem part of you? Um, I suppose you don't think six generations ahead in the future, do you? (laughs) No, I mean, I'm sure they couldn't have conceived of me nor I, I don't think about my sixth generation that's, that's it yeah <laughs> which is a thought you know yeah and that's something that i feel sometimes about climate change and I, that's just me being really honest mm. uh because everyone's upset and worried about it and they're right to be right it's it's this is bad if climate changes and the world goes away mm-hmm. but a selfish part of me is a bit like okay well i want my kids to inherit a nice earth if I have kids. And then my grandchildren, I can't really conceive of them, but of course, yeah, I hope they're happy. And hey, I don't want my grandkids' kids to be living in a desert. (laughs) But beyond that, like, does it, I don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And so nothing exists. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Well, then it's hard to be emotionally attached to the world that far in the future. Yeah. But that's where philosophy and Ethics, I think, can help you think about what is the right attitude to have because we should care about the long, the long run future. But the Earth's going to die one day anyway. Sure, but maybe by then, will our technology? You know, Elon Musk will be seen as a caveman by the standards of the day, and we'll be able to colonize a whole other star system. 
would you want to live forever? Hmm. In my current 26-year-old body? In a, in a healthy enough state, yeah. Define healthy enough. Healthier than you are now. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, yeah, good. Like, like you're, yeah, why not? 20, you're 26 or in a robot body that's made good or whatever. Probably yes. What about in a 60-year-old person's body? Ask me when I'm 60. Yeah. I think what happens is you start, you know, that there's that Beatles song, When I'm 64, will mm-hmm. you still feed me? Da, 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 mm-hmm. When I'm 64. So uh, it's so funny to watch like my, or talk to my dad about that, that kind of thing. Cause like he grew up with them. He's obsessed, obsessed with the Beatles. I mean, who like, who from that age isn't? How funny it must've been to be like a 20 year old, like rocking along to that. I mean, Paul McCartney wasn't that Rocky, you know, but apart from Rocky Raccoon, and, but to listen to that. And then like they're past that age. And my dad's like approaching 70 now. And he says still like, I don't, I don't feel old. Yeah. You know, so I don't, we, we think at our age, you're 26, I'm 33. And I think we think at our age, like, gosh, being 60, you must, you, you must, but I don't, I don't think that ever happens. No, I don't think I'll feel that way when I'm 60. I think I'll feel like, uh, I want a lot more. I want many more years. Yeah. The one crucial caveat would be, do I have to watch everyone I love die or are, are they immortal too? That's that Robin Williams film, Bicentennial Man. Have you mm-hmm. seen that? Mm-mm he's a robot who looks suspiciously like Robin, Robin Williams, you know, cause, mm-hmm. cause it is him mm-hmm. and he lives forever. And over the years he keeps getting opera as the technology advances. It's a fantastic idea. It just wasn't well executed, which is why you've probably not seen it. Cause it didn't mm-hmm. do that well years ago it was. And it was Robin being very mawkish. He gets quite, you know, in those, sometimes he's funny and silly and sometimes mm-hmm. he's very mawkish, uh, like in goodwill hunting or something. So he was like that kind of thing. And it was, and it was, I liked it. Mawkish. That's a word I've never heard. Uh, I'm I'm scared I'm getting it wrong now, but I think Mawkish is like o- over the top um, saccharine or like like oh, okay. s- when a movie is like come on like they're try- they're putting the music on so that yeah. you he can be a bit Mawkish sometimes so can Jim Carrey right mm-hmm. but, but but sometimes it's just right when when they're reined in by a director yeah right? it's, it's just beautiful like in the, the Truman Show mm-hmm. just if you, if the director tells Jim Carrey you know no no stay still just don't overdo everything he's great and so yeah he Robin what was my point oh yeah so over the years technology advances. And so he gets like a, a more human arm and then a more mm-hmm. human this and that. And eventually he's basically a human, but can still live forever. So he has all the thoughts and cares of a human. And his family, his original family, eventually died like 300 years previously, but he gets close to each member of the family. You know, he was sort of like a, the, the house robot. Mm-hmm. That was the thing. So he got close to them all and they all died. And it's such a fantastic and fascinating concept. Yeah. And eventually he decides he wants to be human, even though he knows that will be, and it's not a spoiler because you're probably not going to watch it. So, but it is, <laughs> otherwise it is. But he decides he wants to be human and has a real like heart. And he, you know, the next day slowly dies, you know, which is quite sad. But yeah, he has to watch everyone he knew and loved die. So would you say no then to it, to living forever? It would give me a lot of pause. Yeah. Cause I don't know, would I just grieve deeply every time or would I learn to become hardened enough not to grieve? Would I learn to not connect after a while? Mm. Or would I just get used to seeing, to living with people and watching them die and start to enjoy it? <laughs> Perverse pleasure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would, that would definitely give me pause. Yeah. That's it's, it's, Li- living in a world where just no one, no one around me is even within 200 years of the world that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Maybe if my brain were like neuroplastic enough to really just always be adapting and always feel like I'm of my world. Yeah. And I'm always up to date with how the dialect is changing. I don't sound like I'm from 200 years ago. I'm not crystallized in the time that I originally was a young man. Maybe then I would, but somehow I worry that the human brain may not be built to last that long and adapt forever. Yeah. And so I may just feel like I'm out of place in the world and life might not be worth living after a while. I'd still take it though. You still? I'd, to love, find to live for, I'd love to live forever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. The thing is like, I think we've developed loads of coping mechanisms for the fact that we know we're going to die. And one of them is to lie about how much we would prefer to be yeah, immortal. Right, right. People don't talk about that enough. Yeah. That, that drives me mad. All the bad guys in literature want to live forever and they're, they're portrayed as greedy. Uh, even like Voldemort, that's, that's, that's the whole Harry Potter thing. Mm-hmm. You into Harry Potter? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, that's like the first book. And you're supposed to read it like, what a greedy guy. But I'm reading it like, ah, oh, where's the stone? Yeah. I need this stone to live forever. And meanwhile, we're, we're like often trying to extend our lives as much as physically yeah. possible. Yeah. While saying, While no, saying, I'd be all right. I but don't. I'd stop short of immortality, yeah. right? Yeah. Every, like loads of people I've asked have always said like, I think I'm just going to be ready to go. And I'm like- Another <laughs> question like that, yeah. which I think is, I think is like too convenient is, if you ask any man or woman whether they'd rather be a man or a woman, mm. they will almost always answer that they'd rather be what they are. What do you think that means? 
Well, it, it like can't be a true reflective answer on the question. It can't be that you've actually like objectively thought about it. If it, but it can't, you know, it, it's too much of a coincidence that everyone says, yes, I'd rather be exactly what I am. Or I, it'd be better to be exactly what I am. I think it's just because it's what you know, isn't it? Better the yeah, devil, the devil you, know. you know, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. I'd love to be a woman for a day. But if they answer that, then I would say that's an honest answer. I'd rather the devil. I actually don't, what you're saying is I actually don't know which is, which is better to be. Yeah. But I'm going to stick with the devil I know. I think part of me is quite, sort of quite, it's quite an exciting idea to be a yeah. woman for the... For a few hours. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a few days. Yeah, maybe a few days. If I'm a... A few days you're risking, <laughs> you're risking adjusting to it and actually just yeah. a few days risks the per- wanting to be it permanently. And as a young woman, if you've only got a few days, you, yeah. those few days have to fall on the right time of the month, right? You don't... Because if you've got those three days and it's your one time... And you're bloated the whole time. Oh, man, the pain. Although at least then my fiance could be happy because it's like, I've experienced that. That's right. Because right? she goes around like punching me in the stomach for like right. three days every month. Right. She doesn't really do that. You've seen those videos where they hook up a yeah. guy to Yeah, but what are they using? Period. What is that? What's it doing? Is it punching them or... I think electric shocks or something. It's never going to be the same. No, it's never going to. I would love to experience the 26 or so days of the month that aren't that the, right. these days. How long would you go? I'm a scientist. I can make Coleman Hughes a woman. And what, what is the amount where I say, where, where you go, that's too long? I would say maybe four days is too long. So I'm giving you the chance of a lifetime. Three days. You can experience being the other sex. Yeah. And I'm going, but, but it's got to be five days. Well, if those are the only two options, I think <laughs> I probably would do it. So we got to get onto, onto trans stuff then, I guess. The reason trans stuff doesn't make sense to me, and that, that's not me saying I, I don't, you know, respect and whatever, empathize and all that stuff, is because I don't identify as, as a sex. Mm-hmm. I just sort of am, and I do, like a verb. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how, do you feel that way? I don't feel like I'm being, I'm being man now. No, I think I disagree. I, I think mm. I, because my biological sex and my self-concept align very mm. neatly, 99% of the time, I think I don't, there's nothing, there's no dissonance to notice. So it's easy to think that I don't have a self-concept right. of my gender. Right. But I think if you, if you forced me into a dress right now, I'd be extremely uncomfortable. And why would I be uncomfortable? It wouldn't be because I just have some like general aesthetic dislike of dresses. I love dresses on women. It would be because my, the image I projected is feminine and suddenly the dissonance would be unignorable. I'd be, I'd be crawling out of my skin wanting to get back into man clothes. But that's cultural, it's societal, it's not, it's not inherent and you'd get used to it. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's cultural, but it's also, it's a fact that I do have a gender identity, I think. You think you do? Okay. It, it's just very easy not to notice it when it's also in sync with how everyone else views you and with the genitals you have. Yeah, it's so hard because you might be right. It's like, I have it and I don't realize I've got it. And that's what's hard for me to understand about people who, who want to be the other. Well, you'd never notice it. It's like a fish in water, right? Mm. You never notice what's around you until you experience something different. Just so much of it. I mean, one trans person I spoke to, Debbie Hayton. Or if anyone, everyone just started calling me she all of a sudden, I think it would piss me off. I might. Note you to know? everyone, if you want to piss off Coleman, keep calling him she. But, but, but wouldn't that, what? You, that wouldn't bother you? Well, I just, I, again, it's beyond the realms of my very, very limited imagination. Because mm-hmm. I can't see a set of circumstances in which people start to say, what about her to me? And I'd be like, what? Yeah, it would shock me. But again, it's about, a lot of it's about the perception of others. So this person, Debbie Hayton, who is a physics professor who identifies as a woman, I believe, you know, and, and I sometimes do have a problem with it because it's like, you know, by growing hair longer and stuff like that. And it's like, what well, is that what it means to be a woman having long hair and things like that? And, but then what she, because she wants to be she, it says about that is that it's about the feeling of the perception of others. It's about how others view her. She wants mm-hmm. others. That's what it is for her. And I, I see. That was interesting to me. And I, obviously mm-hmm. all trans people are going to feel things differently, but it was really interesting to be like, oh, it's about how others view you. And then there's someone else, I can't remember her name now, someone Bornstein who used to be a Scientologist and, and is a trans person as well, who, who said she, she did loads for like um, trans rights and stuff. And then once she got to 70, she said like, I don't really feel that anymore. Like it's like, I'm still a she or whatever, but I'm not, I'm not that involved in my body, my, my boobs or whatever they are have sagged. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't care about what my body looks like to other people. Mm-hmm. So I'm just doing and being. And that I related to that because I just felt like, okay, like I'm used to my genitals or whatever. But if it's just, I woke up one morning, like a Kafka-esque thing and it's like, yeah. oh my God. Okay, it'd be a shock. Yeah. And then eh, get on with it, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I wonder that there's an analogy to people that have this, what's the condition called where you don't think your arm is yours. Oh yeah, yeah sorry. Uh, 
I don't know what that's ghost called. Ghost limb? Yeah. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, like having a ghost limb. I mean, there's been weird situations in life where just, for me, for like a split second, you know, I f- my right hand felt like my left and my left hand felt yeah. like my right. I've had these l- just little flashes of, yeah. of moments where certain strange things have happened where parts of my body don't feel correct. Mm-hmm. My guess is that, I don't know what causes that, but it's just a flash of what, if it were extended all day would become a kind of dysphoria, a deep dysphoria, not a gender dysphoria, but a literal, like, I don't think that my arm is mine. There's that thing, not to get crass, but when people talk about Mm self-love, there's that thing of like, people say, sit on your hand for a certain amount of time before doing so, because then it doesn't feel like it's your hand. Oh, but then you also can't. (laughs) Coleman looked at my hand when I said, (laughs) I haven't done that. Remind me not to shake your hand. (laughs) I never did that, but I've heard people say that. Uh I've also heard people say, I'll use the other your less used hand again for that same sensation. Cause, cause ultimately a lot of that self-love thing is about pretending that, especially when people are watching porn mm-hmm. is to pretend that they are the other, you're, you are trying to almost be, have that dysphoria feeling that you are, you're uh, living vicariously. By through. self-love, you mean masturbation? Yeah. I was worried about the YouTube algorithm, but um, you've said it now, mate. <laughs> I just feel so weird calling that self-love. What could you say that wouldn't like kick off a, uh, a censorship thing on YouTube? Playing with yourself? I don't know. What yeah, that's, that's too like... Um, it's a uh, very British euphemism. Tickling the general. <laughs> I'm in the UK. That's... Yeah. Strumming the guitar. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. So there you go. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to imagine if I actually woke up fully in the, in the body of a female... I don't know. I mean, I think I would be super alarmed, but after a while I would have to accept it. And I think, I mean, I think, you know, you'd be, you'd be surprised what you can adapt to. I think that's what I think. Yeah. I'd be too tall. I'd you'd be, be too, tall, be too to be, tall. Yeah, that's my. There are women as tall as you. It so, wouldn't look good. Yeah. I'm six foot four. You can't be. A, you just made some women very angry. Oh no, no, but that they look beautiful. They oh, sh- sh- you're right. I'm actually worried <laughs> about that. Maybe I'll take that bit out. Um, we should. We need to wrap up because we've got like four minutes left. All right. Um, where do you want to send? Are we putting this out on each other's podcasts? Yes, we are. Where do you want to send my audience to go? So you can go to at coldxman on Twitter. You can. Check out my podcast, Conversations with Coleman, and you can go to colemanhughes.org to become a subscriber. Fantastic. Uh, I will send your people to... Also, people should check out your rap stuff, man. Yeah. I, I'm not a rap person, mm-hmm. right? But my word, is it good? Thank you. Phenomenal. Thank you. I'm going to keep saying so until you feel <laughs> you know what to say. It's ridiculously good. And the production, the video. So even if you're not a rap fan, the videos are like worth watching. You know, you can't... So check out Blasphemy on YouTube. Blasphemy is the song. And I have an album coming out in early February called Amor Fati. So check that out on Spotify, so Apple good. Music, wherever you listen to music. So good. So good. And then my thing is On The Edge with Andrew Gold. We've interviewed many of the same people, commonized. There's a lot of the culture war stuff as mm-hmm. well. I'm not quite as philosophical as or well spoken as, as. In fact, I don't want to put people off. Yeah, come and go. I am. I'm really good. Come and look, <laughs> look at the. No, podcast. it's a great podcast. I love. I mean, there's so much, so many interesting people from the fringes of of various, you know, cults, former cult members, former Scientology, just all of these very interesting people that you get. So no, I, I think. You know, fans of me would probably be very interested in it. There'll be an overlap. Totally. My favorite episode was a guy who, um, in, he was in a plane crash over the Andes mm-hmm. uh, from Uruguay to Chile and uh, had to eat his friends. That's my favorite ever episode. Wow. So that's, it's only on the audio one. So it's not on YouTube. You'd have to find it on the audio. People will find it on Spotify and all that. But it's uh, episode 53. And that blew my mind, that one. There you go. Well, on that note. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks yeah. for coming on. Thanks for having me. And cool. thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.